Our text out of the book of Ezekiel that we'll be looking at tonight is from Ezekiel chapter 17, two eagles and a tree. All right, starting in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers and various colors came to Lebanon and took from the cedar, the highest branch. Okay, so thus, one eagle and a tree. All right, so we get this parable, this riddle that God gives to Ezekiel to tell regarding this eagle and this tree so far. Verse 4, he cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to the land of trade. He set it in the city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. All right, so he takes his, grabs his little twig off of this cedar tree and some seeds, and he goes and he plants them in fertile ground near some water. It grew and became a low spreading vine of stature. Its branches turned towards him, towards the eagle, but its roots were under it, so it became a vine brought forth branches and put forth shoot. So it begins to grow. It's growing towards the eagle. It's got roots underneath the ground, and it's a low stature of vine growing. But this vine bent its roots towards another great eagle with large wings and many feathers and stretched its branches towards him, the second eagle, from where it had been planted that he might water it. All right, so we got this plant playing sides here, first growing towards the eagle that planted, now turning and growing towards another eagle for its water and its nutrients and sustenance. All right, so we get the picture being played out here. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and became a majestic vine. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he, that first eagle, not pull it up by its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? Right? If he took this time, went and flew there, and took a branch, and planted it with seeds, and, and nourished it by water and fertile ground, and its roots were growing, and then it turns on it, won't he just pluck it up? Won't he be jealous? Won't he not be happy with that? Is the question that God poses to the people. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, do you know what these things mean? All right, so he gives this illustration, gives this riddle, gives this parable, and he says, do you know what this means? All right, so is the meaning there pretty obvious for us? Does it, does it make pretty much sense? Right, you catch the theme of what's taking place here. Now, as we've been reading Ezekiel, we see that God was using Ezekiel to, to denounce a lot of the hypocrisy and the idol idol worship that was going on here. And so we can see a, a, a clear uh, picture of, of God as the first eagle and God planting Israel, the tree, and it growing and growing towards him, but then turning and turning towards idols to other gods and false things, right? But that's not the parable. That's not the explanation of this parable anyway. All right, so let's go to the Bible and find out what the explanation is. So it's so easy to read something in the Bible and jump to a conclusion. Might seem a logical conclusion, might seem like the right conclusion, but we need to let the Bible tell us what its own conclusions are. Okay, so let's go to the Bible and continue into verse 12. 
tell them, indeed the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. So the first eagle was Nebuchadnezzar. The first eagle here in the illustration, in this illustration anyway, is Babylon. And so he takes uh, a branch, takes the king, uppermost branch from the tree, Israel, and takes it with him. And he took the king's offspring, so that's the seeds, right? It said in the parable, he took some seeds as well with him. Well, that's the king's offspring. So he took the king's offspring and the mighty of the land and made a covenant with him and put him under oath to bring low the kingdom so that it could not lift itself up, but by keeping his covenant, it might stand. So Nebuchadnezzar would continue to provide for the king and continue to protect Israel, even though under servitude, as a low-growing tree, but it would sustain it, it would grow, it would live, as long as it remained under the covenant that it made with Babylon. But he, the king of Israel, king of Judah anyway, rebelled against him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and sent for help from Egypt, that they might give him horses and people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? Right? Can we make a promise? Can we make a promise to the Lord and to whom the Lord is using? Where uh, in uh, the Bible, Jeremiah, he calls uh, Nebuchadnezzar God's servant. And so God was using Nebuchadnezzar even in his horrible form and ways. But God used him and had had a plan and called the kings and Jeremiah and Ezekiel calling for the kings of Judah to submit to the king of Babylon, and yet he refused. And he turns to Egypt for help. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what ends up happening. Verse 16, As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. And exactly as Ezekiel prophesied, that's exactly what happened. The king of Judah gets taken to Babylon um, after making a pact with Babylon and then turning to Egypt for help. And then he eventually gets taken to Babylon as a captive and dies in Babylon. Just like the Bible said. Just like the parable. Just like the riddle. Just like the Bible prophesied would happen. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. And that's exactly what happened as well. Egypt did come to try and help. Egypt saw Babylon with its uh, siege around Jerusalem and they said, well, we're not going to get in the midst of this. We're not messing with Babylon. That's too much for us. And they turn tails and they don't end up help helping uh, Israel or Judah rather and Jerusalem. Exactly as the Bible prophesied. The Bible is an amazing, amazing book. It is right all the time. Its prophecies come to pass exactly as they said they would. We can rest assured in God's word, in all the other aspects, in all the promises that it has for us today, all the prophecies for the future, because we can see how it has been right, how it has been accurate time and time and time again in the past. And this is a great illustration. Ezekiel writing from Babylon before these events took place and them coming to pass exactly as he said it would. We can trust God's word 
we can trust his prophecies. And that's in addition to what we've seen in our own lives of God's work in our lives and God's power in our lives transforming us and the testimony that we have. And that reminds me of a testimony I read this week of uh, a lady, she was on uh, a plane and, uh, and she pulled out her Bible and uh, started to read it and the person next to her, uh, a gentleman said, um, or maybe just a, a man <laughs> said to her, um, uh, would you like to talk to spend the time as we're flying on this long flight and to pass the time with a little conversation? And so she closed the Bible and said, sure, what would you like to talk about? And he said, well, um, how about talking about the fact that the Bible is old and fables and, and uh, does not have any meaning or help for us today, that there is no God and that the world uh, was not created uh, just a few thousands of years ago, but uh, science and, and everything has proven all of that false and fallacy and anyone who believes those things is foolish. And she said, well, we can talk about those things if you'd like, uh, but I'd like to ask you a question first. And he said, okay, go right ahead. And she said, why is it that a cow who eats grass poops soft poop that lands on the ground and becomes flat and round, and a deer who eats grass produces small round pellets? And why is it that a horse who eats grass poops squarish type of chunks of poop. Why do they all have different type of poop? And the man says, well, you know, I, I don't know. And so she says to him, well, how on earth are we going to talk about the majesties of heaven and the glory of the powerful almighty God when you don't know crap? <laughs> the Bible gives us the explanations for everything we need to know. And things are, there, are, there are things beyond our comprehension in this world and in the world to come. But the Bible has given us enough to know that God is real. That he is able to know the end from the beginning, that he has been there, he will be there, he has been there in the past for us, he is here in the today for us, and he will be with us till the end of the age and on through to eternity. And we can trust him because the Bible is true. And so as we read these things and we see these things, we are reassured of the power of God and the word of God. Verse 19, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. And again, that's exactly what happened. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I will take the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will carp off from its topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain, on the mountain height of Israel. I will plant it, and it will bring forth burrows, and bear fruit, and be a majestic cedar. So now he goes on into this next prophecy, saying that, this, that he is now going to go and go to that tree, 
and take from its highest branches and set out a, a crop off a tender one from this branches, from the branches of this tree. And he is going to plant it on a prominent mountain in Israel, and it's going to become a majestic tree and bear fruit. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it. And we see that. We see that God did then plant Israel again. He brought us back to the land of Israel. He planted us again. And we've grown and flourished under God's care. And then have continued to this very day. God is miraculous. God is powerful. God's word comes to pass. And it comes to pass here as well. He says he brings down the high trees. Pride cometh before the fall. God lays low the boastful and the proud. Nebuchadnezzar eventually and Babylon eventually was destroyed. The Medo-Persians were eventually destroyed. Greece was eventually destroyed. Rome was eventually destroyed. Pagan Roman Empire. But God remains. And God's people remain. Saw a testimony of a Holocaust survivor and she said as she continues to live on and and have her life and look at her children and her grandchildren and, and she thinks, I am surviving, I am eating, I am living. And Hitler is dead. I live on. And he does not. We live on. God has sustained us and he's brought down the powerful of this world, the proud of this world, the haughty of this world. And the key for us is to stay low, humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. But that's important applications to this prophecy as well. But there's another one, another maybe even a more important application for this text. And for that we will jump to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52 and 53, or at least portions of it. We don't have time, or we could take the time to read the whole entire chapter, but you can do that at home as well. It's a powerful, powerful chapter, the whole of it. I'm going to just look at a few parts of it. Starting in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. And as we just read, he plucks this tender tree, a tender branch, and it will grow and prosper and be exalted and be a high cedar. In chapter 53, verse 2, just a few verses after that, says he will grow up before him as a tender plant. And that's what the prophecy in Ezekiel 17 was about, a growing of a tender plant as a root out of dry ground. It mentioned a root as well. He has no form or comeliness. He's a low, tender branch. And when you make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed. In the chapter, Ezekiel 17, it mentions the seed as well. That the branch and twig is taken as well as seeds are taken. And he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This prophecy in the chapter in its whole and its totality is an amazing prophecy, hundreds of years in advance, describing the Messiah to come. 
The Messiah who would be born in a lowly state, the Messiah who would come from a majestic line, who would come through the line of Judah, who would come through the line of David, who would come from a high tree, but would be a tender shoot as a branch out of dry ground. Born in a cow stable or, or sheep stable, sheep stall, with plenty of poop and flies and smell and horrid atmosphere all around it. But to a poor family who were on the run, looking for a place to stay and couldn't afford hardly anything who on the eighth day of his birth, when they took him to the temple for his circumcision and naming, all they could give was a turtle dove for, a, for an offering, a small captured bird. And then had to flee, and had to flee to Egypt for we don't know how many years in exile. With no comeliness, nothing that we should desire him. No kingly stature, no riches, no influence, no fame, no earthly powers, tender branch growing up as a root out of dry ground. And yet he makes his soul an offering for sin. In this chapter, Isaiah 53 comes about that analogy in several different ways, saying that he would bear our iniquities, that he would bear our sins, that he is punished for our sins. He becomes an offering. He dies as an offering for our sins. Becomes the atonement for us. Becomes the substitute for us. Becomes the Lamb of God for us. Becomes the payment for our sins. Because we have nothing to pay and nothing to give. And yet it says, and yet he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. Well, how can he see his seed? See his seed? How can he see his offspring if he dies? If he became an offering for sin, if he died as a sacrifice, how could he see his seed? How could his days be prolonged unless he is resurrected? Unless he is brought to newness of life? Unless he comes forth out of the ground and just as the Messiah did? And is able and seated at the right hand of the Father now, who the Lord's pleasure has prospered in his hand, who has become highly exalted and sitting up on his throne in the heavens, looking down at us today, looking down at his seed. And he is well pleased because it has prospered thousands of years. His word and his truth and his righteousness and his goodness and his promises have continued to prosper in his people down to this day. The miracle of God. The power of God. The one who was beaten and bruised and abused for our sake, who bore our sins, became the sacrifice for us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, ministering in our behalf and caring for us. And we get to experience his glory and his joy as we remain low because it is the low tree that gets raised up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. That's something we can do. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Well, how do we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord? 
We bow down before him. We acknowledge what the Bible tells us and which is a reality before us. Without him, we can do nothing. And we can, we can do nothing. We've seen the reality of that just this week. With a person with a massive heart attack and a person with a massive stroke and a person threatened with, with brain tumor. And without the Lord, we cannot think, we cannot breathe, our heart does not pump, our blood does not flow. We cannot force that to do that. We cannot make it do that. Without the Lord, we have no breath. Without the Lord, we have no life. He is our sustainer. And so just an acknowledgement of that, that our every breath we take, as we see a child grow, as we see an infant become a child and a child become a an adolescent, an adolescent become an adult, the miracle of God in the growth cycle. We can't form that. We can't change our stature, our height, permanently change our color of our hair. God sets these things. God makes them happen. It's a miracle of God. How a cut on a hand can heal and a scratch on a car can't. Miracle of God, power of God, sustaining us. So we humble ourselves in acknowledgement of him. The meek shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness is not weakness. There's a difference between being meek and being weak. Meek is not weak at all. There's a difference. In meek, it starts with a letter that looks like this, and in weak, it starts with a letter that looks like this. There's a difference between the two. They're not interchangeable words. In their written form and other letters, they're different as well, but also in their total meaning, they're different. It's not the weak will inherit the earth, but it's the meek. Well, what is meek? The Bible says Moses was the meekest man on earth. When we look at the life of Moses, was Moses weak? Before he came to the Lord, he was a strong man. He goes and kills an Egyptian soldier. He was a strong man. He lived out in the desert and persevered through that. Chased away some, some shepherds who were harassing some ladies at a well. He was not weak. In any fashion or the form, he was not weak of mind. But when he comes to the Lord and he meets him in, in the fiery burning bush, he takes off his shoes and he bows down before him. And he acknowledges that God is almighty. And he receives the meekness of the Lord. Humble before God. And then in that same meekness, he's able to go forth before the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, who could kill anybody at a moment's notice for any reason. And Moses comes before him time and time and time again and survives without any fear. Let my people go. That's not weak in any way, shape, or form. He had courage. He had strength. He had power. Meekness is acknowledging our dependency on God. Coming low before God being weak before God, but strong before humanity. That is true meekness. Humbling ourselves before God, being low before Him. 
acknowledging that we cannot receive forgiveness of sins, there's no way we can make up for the mistakes that we've made. That we have no power in ourselves, that no matter how many good deeds we do, it cannot make up for the one wrong we did. And that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we're all in need of forgiveness, that we're all in need of God's help to breathe and to be forgiven. And that we cannot get forgiveness in any other way, in any other place, other than the Lamb slain, the Messiah for us, God's servant, the Messiah, who became an offering for sin for us. Humbling ourselves before the Lord is acknowledging our need of his forgiveness and of accepting of his grace, of his help, of his power. It is realizing that without him we can do nothing. We have no power to do any good at all. Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. We can do no good without him. We need him. And that we receive of him. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He raises the tree to be a mighty cedar, to stand through the storms. To set down roots down deep into the earth. To suck the nutrients of God. Even during droughts and hard times and difficulties. Staying firm and staying green. Cheerful and hopeful. And peaceful. Even through the troubles of this world. That's what it means to lay low before God. To humble ourselves before God. And that he will raise up. But when we think we can do it on our own, when we get independent, when we get self-sufficient, he brings us down and he brings us low. And we fall before him. We either have a choice to be, fall on the rock and be crushed, or else the rock will fall upon us and crush us. One way we survive, the other way we don't. Better for us to fall on our faces before God and acknowledge our need of Him. And so as we pray together, if you want to, and we pray in a moment, if you want to acknowledge before God your need of Him, your utter helplessness without Him, you can do that when we pray. If there's any area of your life where you felt self-sufficient, if there's any area in your life right now where you're struggling to do it in your own strength, maybe to solve some problem, something's got you worried, something's got you fearful, something you're doubting God's power about, you've been trying to work it out in your own way, running from human assistance to human assistance, depending upon your wit, your knowledge, your finances, human beings without God and you want to acknowledge your need of him and ask for him to step in to be your source, to be your strength for him to use whatever means he chooses, whether again humans, but it's God using them, not them themselves God providing for us God taking care of us if there's some area in your life where you've been depending on yourself or depending on others as opposing of depending on God to give either you the strength or to use others 
In a moment when we pray, you can surrender that before God. If you've broken your covenant with God or man, and you're looking to other sources, you want to surrender that to God and ask forgiveness for breaking your promise to him, breaking your covenant with him, breaking your commitment to him. You haven't been living up to the calling that he's called you to, and you want to surrender that to him and accept his grace and accept his forgiveness. In the moment when we pray, you can do that. If you've doubted his truthfulness and his promises, if you've doubted his ability, if you've doubted the word of God, if you've doubted the sufficiency of God, if you've doubted the reality of God, and yet now you're seeing that he is good, he is powerful, he is just, he does see the end, he knows everything, and his word is faithful, and that you can trust in him. When we pray, you can accept him and accept his power and his grace and choose to believe in him. If any of those areas apply to you, let us humble ourselves before him and pray to him and come to him. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, that as we come before you, we came into this world with nothing and we leave this world with nothing. We're thankful, Lord, that you are enough for us. That you clothe us with your righteousness, that you lift us up and that you sustain us. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. And we want to stay low before you. We want to stay humble before you. Strengthen us, Lord, live in us and out of us and fulfill your will and your purpose through us. Meet our every need according to your riches and glory and use whatever means you see fit to use. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.